Welcome to Arrows on Air, presented by Tomorrow's Air. I'm Christina Beckman, and this is a show where we meet artists, travelers, and scientists from all over the world to talk about art, travel, and climate action. Welcome, everyone. We're here this afternoon with Natasha Martin. Natasha is a lifelong traveler for for work and for fun, I would say. I also think of you, Natasha, as a um, lifelong expat. You are also a travel industry professional. Um, and of course, we want to talk in this call about all the Smarty Pants stuff that you do. Um, but first of all, I would like to ask you some personal questions. Number one, you're calling in from Cambodia today. So I want to hear a little bit about that first. And then I'm going to ask you about your grandma. So how are things in Cambodia? Thanks for inviting me on your podcast. I've, um, I've never been on a podcast before, um, and I speak so fast. So I'm gonna, I'll try and hopefully speak at a good pace. Um, so, so yeah, I'm calling from Cambodia. It's 7.30 in the morning. It's a million degrees here at the moment. We're waiting for the rainy season to start. Um, and life, you know, recording this in May, end of May, life is back to normal here. So we feel sort of pretty fortunate to be able to eat in restaurants, uh, go to the beach. Oh, seriously. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. so it feels like we're a little bit ahead of the rest of the world right now, which is not the way it normally feels in Cambodia, obviously. Mm -hmm. And so Natasha, you are Canadian, uh, but you've lived, tell us, give us a little preview of all the places that you've lived. And I'm still going to come back to the grandma question. So I am Canadian and born in Canada, but I'm a first generation Canadian. Both my parents are immigrants. Um, but my dad worked abroad. So we grew up living around the world in Africa and the Middle East and the Caribbean. And I guess I had some of that in me because I kept moving. Um, when I was out on my own, I studied um, abroad and then taught English in Japan and just, yeah, kept living abroad. And now that I work in tourism, I, um, yeah, I'm still trying to take on these longer term jobs which let me live in markets. Um, so I think I'm coming up on 15 countries where I've lived for more than a year. And you, you married a Danish guy and moved to Phnom Penh. That's right. So I married a guy who works in the beer industry who also has is an expat. So that worked out really well. We met at a marathon in Myanmar. I was working in Myanmar in tourism for the for Solimar and he was working for Carlsberg who he still works for. And that was 7 years ago and now we're on our third country together. So it's great to have found somebody who also enjoys living abroad. I love it. Um it's such a I mean for so many people who are working desk jobs it's kind of like, I remember that was like a fantasy when I was working a desk job was like, how could I live in different countries and have a life? And what would that look like? And, and there you are, you have it. Um, so cool. Now let's go back to grandma. Your grandmother is one of the most interesting characters. I remember when we were working in India together in the state of Assam, there would be many long drives and you would just regale us with these stories of your incredible family and your grandma was always a standout. So I want to hear the latest from your grandma. 
Well, she is still doing great. Um, you know, my grandmother is probably, she's 87 now. She turned 87 on May 5th. And she's just, she's phenomenal. As you know, from the stories I've told you, she was born in Kenya, raised in Uganda, um, exiled from Uganda as a refugee, and then found herself and rebuilt herself and her family and our family business in Canada. So she's a complete fighter, but she's also this, you know, very ladylike lady who loves fashion and technology and she FaceTimes us every day and she emails and she's on Facebook and she's on Instagram and she's just very much ahead of her time. And um, I think one of my favorite stories that sort of, you know, um, really shows who she is, is she was one of, she was the first Indian to work for British Airways in East Africa. And, um, and so in the fifties being Indian in East Africa, even though, you know, that was a very multicultural society back then, there was still a lot of racism. And so she tells these stories about how she'd be checking people in at the British Airways counter in Kampala. And she, some people, you know, presumably white older men would be so rude and so racist, and she would just be unfailingly polite and, and super nice. And then if they were flying to London, she would send their bags to Mali. And, <laughs> and she's like, and, and, you know, back in those days, no tracking. So I'm assuming they never saw their bags again. So I'm always super, super nice to the check-in ladies um, because I know what they can do if they, if they don't like you. And she sends you cards. Doesn't she always send you a postcard everywhere you live? That's Even my other you, I remember grandma. in India. Oh, that's the other grandma. <laughs> I'm so lucky with my grandmas. Yes, my other grandma has tracked my addresses around the world from Greenland to Myanmar and managed to get a postcard to my door every single week. That's amazing. Well, I mean, I guess you could sort of, so travel is very much in your blood. I think it probably didn't surprise anyone in your family when you came to a career in travel, but could you share a little bit about your route, like to becoming, to becoming the travel professional you are today? I didn't mention um, good, good tourism, which is your, your consulting practice. And I think the vision behind that is so perfect, especially for coming out of this coronavirus pandemic. But um, say a little bit about, you know, how you how you got into this line of work. Yeah, we have pleasure. So I mean, it's so serendipitous uh, because, you know, obviously you and I met at the very start of my career and I would never be working in tourism if it wasn't for you. And I think it's so funny because we met working, as you remember, on this project for coffee houses in Southern California. And I think neither of us have ever worked with coffee houses before or after that, right? Like such an outlier in both our career paths. Don't let a lack of knowledge stop you from starting. There you go. <laughs> so when I met you sort of flailing around this coffee shop project and you had blown up your life um, and started Zola Consulting and I had never you know, despite the fact that I had traveled, I had no idea that there could be a career in tourism that just, which to this day seems so weird to me because I was traveling, I knew guys, just, just wasn't something I was considering. But this, this, this thing that you were starting was hugely appealing to me to, you know, to work with smart people and figure out what turns a place into a destination. And, and so the, my first start in this industry was really jumping on board with you. Um, 
and, and, and Zola Consulting. And you gave me that opportunity and took me to India and took me to Peru. And it was just so lucky that I was at the right place at the right time where Zola was taking off and you could hire you know, interns and take us around the world. And, um, and I just haven't looked back since then. And I, I don't even know what I'd be doing if I hadn't met you. Natasha, um, help me remember some of the crazy times that we had working together in Assam. I have so many happy memories from that project, but it was also such a bananas project, um, especially for me because it was my first consulting project. But I remember and my first in that kind of line of work. Well, you you know you held it together. I mean, which is the the, the role of a great boss to make you feel like they're in charge. But I knew I know now I know now how secretly <laughs> you know how um, how chaotic you must have felt on the inside. But I remember like rocking up to the LA airport and meeting Adam, who was our third consulting partner. And I'm, I've always been an overpacker. So I had this like giant duffel bag and he showed up with a bag, like the size of which I would take to the gym and <laughs> a cardboard box full of homemade chocolate chip cookies. And I was like, are you serious? And he was serious. And it turns out he just loves his grandma's cookies and generally travels with a giant box of them. So that was You like- guys and your grandmas. <laughs> right. And then I remember like through that whole project, just being taken way more seriously than I felt, which you might also relate to that at that time. I don't know. Um, you know, we were having these meetings with ministers and other dignitaries and, and, um, and it just always felt very grown up and very important, even though I felt like I had no idea really what I was doing. Um, and I remember Zola starting to take off and you had speaking engagements in the Philippines. And so you would send Adam and I to random parts of Assam, including once we took this train to Haplong, where there was an insurgency and we were staying at the same hotel as the national police who were trying to quell the insurgency and we shared whiskey with them. And it was just one of those moments where we were like, what is happening? And How that- is that even happening? I remember some of those photos, like you and all these military Yes, we had 25 armed guards escort us everywhere we went. And it was just... And this is the tourism development team. Yeah, they're like, what can we even get more people like you here? <laughs> we're like, well... Yes, that's where we started. So that first project in northeastern India, um, we were looking at at the adventure tourism potential for the state of Assam, which has still, I believe, excellent adventure tourism potential. It remains a little bit overlooked um, with a lot of opportunity. What? But since that time, you've been in, in a number of different countries and I'm sure, I mean, I hate to date us, but you know, that was like 15 years ago now. Maybe could you say a little bit about some of the places you've worked since then? And if you, have you observed any shifts in how people think about sustainability or, or land use or just ramble on a little bit on that line. Sure. So so after India um, and Peru, I, I kept working in Latin America and I worked for a long time with Greenland. And, and it's kind of fun because I'm still working with Greenland. They're one of my oldest clients. And I think, you know, they're obviously at the forefront um, of climate change. And so the sustainability conversation has always been really um, urgent there. And I think there's so many really exciting really great tourism destinations that are also sort of facing the facing the challenges caused by climate change front on. So so destination developers and policymakers have had to look at how to create these sort of 
pro-tourism climate policies and things like this that take both things into consideration at the same time. And at the same time, I think that obviously entrepreneurs and developers are, are taking this seriously, but there's a hope. And I don't know that this really plays out in the research that we see, but there's a hope that tourists and travelers themselves are more interested in this question and that they're making their choices um, with, with, um, with climate in mind and sustainability in mind. And I was sort of, I'm, I was sort of, um, you know, unsure if this was really happening, but then just before the pandemic hit, you know, there was a lot of talk around flight shaming and, and trying to do more domestic travel because it was so much better for the earth. So I think maybe travelers consciousness is becoming much more aware of this and maybe our choices are changing because of these new questions. So I, I think there is a, a cause to be optimistic that we're taking these questions more seriously, both at the destination level and at the traveler level. Mm-hmm. I remember, I mean, I've been, I was thinking to, you know, our project in India and in Peru um, and the, how base our sustainability knowledge, like we had this intuitive sense of right and wrong. We, you know, I remember going to the Ramsar bird site and seeing the brick, the brick factories in the middle of the Ramsar site and realizing that that maybe wasn't perfect alignment for conservation. But we, I mean, it wasn't such a big part of our discussion then. We were focused on product and marketing, and we were really focused on workforce development in a way, although we, I don't think we were sophisticated enough to call it that. Um, and now it seems to me like we do get a lot of questions from destinations, from governments who are trying to think about how to market that, how to build product sustainably. It So, but now we're talking um, like tourism lingo. If you're a traveler, you just go to a place, right? Like you, you see pictures on Instagram or somebody took a great trip and they tell you about it and you want to go there. And I'm curious about, because I know you have worked, like you posted some pictures from um, Newfoundland maybe. And I looked at those and I was like, I want to go there. That looks great. My husband's Canadian. Let's do that. And then, so your picture grabbed me because it looked really fun. But then you were sort of deconstructing that experience in your caption of that picture. And I, could you just say a little bit about what you, you know, the behind the scenes that travelers might not, might not know that's going on? Like just, um, what's a basic experience that actually gets constructed? That's so interesting. I wonder what photo you're talking about. And I would also like to say you should definitely go to Newfoundland. It was one of the best trips I have ever taken and made me want to travel so much more in, in rural Canada. But I mean, I think I think what you're asking is sort of how much of that tourism experience is constructed by someone we don't see. Um, and, and so much of it is, you know, so rarely is a tourism product uh, ready to go, um, you know, in a forest, paths have to be made, signs have to be put up, somebody has to think about what part of the forest you avoid and what part you can walk through. Um, there's so much thought that comes in from environmentalists, from policymakers, from local government, from local residents about how they want tourism. In, in, in a best case scenario, all these people are contributing to the conversation of what tourism can look like in a certain place. And so as a tourist, you know, you might come to say a food tour, um, 
and and have that experience and think that perhaps the entrepreneur put it together for you. But they also had to um, perhaps get permission from different levels of government and the government had to have certifications that allowed that person to either lead the tour or cook the food and they had to have hygiene um, certifications. And so there is all these levels that go into designing a tourism experience that we don't see. And as But as, such a sorry, I want to break in there. That's such a great example because when I came to visit you with my five year old son Jack in Cambodia, you suggested that we go on this incredible food tour which was one of the highlights totally of our whole trip that um, and your husband and the inflatable duck that we played with in your pool. The peacock. Uh, <laughs> um, but so that, like, is that, do you think that um, food tour that we booked, did they go through all of that? Like they, I guess they had to get permits. They probably got some advice on how to deal with Western travelers. Do you know? Yes. And they had to, you know, you probably, I can't remember if you did the morning or the night tour, but they had to train, they had to train every single one of those vendors that you stopped with. They had to explain them things like, um, you know, Westerners might order a big bowl of soup and then take one bite, but don't be offended by that. You know, they had to teach them about the cultural norms of hosting Western tourists. They had to teach them that if somebody gives you a dollar, they and they, they wave their hand, they don't want change. So there's all the training that goes into, um, into making a tour. So there's the training on the one hand with the vendors, there's the certification um, that a guide can, can actually be a guide, you know, in, in most developing countries, you can't just start a tour. Um, I used to offer free walking tours in Myanmar before I was stopped by the police because I wasn't a registered guide. Um, which is completely fair enough, even though I wasn't charging. Um, and so, yeah, there's there's so much that goes on um, to prepare uh, to prepare um, an experience for someone to enjoy it. And and for you to for someone to enjoy it, we have to think about what do our tourists want? Um, what do they feel comfortable with? What's going to be the perfect mix of discovery and, and comfort? And you know, how can they feel safe but feel like they're exploring at the same time? And that's a lot of the question that goes into developing adventure experiences, I think. And to make it accessible and bookable. And I think I used to, when I first started traveling on my own, I I really shunned anything that felt like a tour because I wanted to go and just be on my own. And now as I've been working with local guides and in travel for a long time, I feel like the benefits, there's so many benefits of a local guide. and not least of which you're leaving some money behind, which is kind of the least you can do (laughs) since you're there consuming everything and leaving your garbage. Uh, But it's a, it's been a huge kind of shift for me. That's always like, I, I feel like that's the thing I want to do in each place is figure out who, what's the best local guide to use. And then, but it's really true. There's so much behind the scenes that happens. Like, I didn't know. I didn't know any of that. You know, Nathan Vereneth, I think, was his name. I probably Vanerith. don't have that exactly. Yeah, right. But yeah. We had so much fun with him. And it felt completely natural. We got in the rickshaw and we rode around and Jack ate these different things. And we walked through the wet market, which will probably never happen again because of this virus. And anyway, yeah. Great point yeah. on that. Tell me. Sorry, go ahead. 
I was going to say, I think that that two things come to my mind when you say that the first is like, it is actually so much more fun to travel with a great guide. And you know, those are the things that become available as you kind of get older, have more, less time and more money. Right. So there's sort of this like economic perspective to it. But I've also been thinking like there, Cambodia still hosts a lot of backpackers, like that sort of the way you were talking about traveling before. And it's so interesting because if I, I visited Thailand like 15 years ago and you're on the beach and people are talking to each other, but now people are on their phones and they're you, but I think they're also using their phones to get this information. So there is also this shift at the budget traveler level where they're doing more of these experiences because that information is so easily accessible to them. Mm-hmm. Tell me about um, your work, if you can, about your work in Saudi. You've been recently part of a really interesting development project from the ground up, as I understand, with a really cool team of people in Saudi Arabia, which when I went to Saudi Arabia in 2011, it was a, for, for, we were leading a workshop and it was a huge production to get in and out. And anyway, now it seems like that part of the world is really shifting. Yeah, I think about this so much. This is one of the things I was wondering if we would talk about is, you know, the shift in tourism flows. And I think growing up, Saudi Arabia was never on my list of places I wanted to visit because I never thought I could. It was just not even in my the realm of possibility. But now, you know, you can get a tourist visa online. And I was part of a project, as you mentioned, with a really cool team led by Omar Samra, who um, is the founder of Wild Guanabana. And Saudi is opening up to tourism in a big way. And this is information that's public. And they've launched three giga projects. And so we were working on one of the giga projects, which is called the Red Sea Development Project. And um, looking that the the objective of the Red Sea Development Project is to be the most sustainable tourism destination in the world. And they're taking that really seriously in terms of regenerating coral and, you know, creating um, LEED certified buildings and lots of space for national parks and things like this. So it's a huge undertaking. but Saudi is really, really beautiful. Um, there was a lot to see. And it was, um, for me, it was this experience that I don't have as much as I would like to. And I think the, those of us who travel at times sort of, you know, you it, because there's so much information online, because you have so many friends who have been there before you, it's hard to be surprised by a place. But Saudi was a place that really surprised me. I was working with so many smart, educated women. And, and even I had that, um, you know, that stereotype in my mind of Saudi that I think we all have from, from the news and the media that we read that maybe, um, you know, we have these preconceptions about women's place in Saudi society. But I was so impressed with the women we were working with. Um, there was no need to cover your head. Foreign women don't need to wear an abaya anymore. And so it was just a one of those experiences where it was so different from what I expected. And I think that's why we travel. And, and somehow those experiences are less and less the more we have access to information online. Yeah, I this um, notion of being surprised and that we were having this conversation about, I'm sure everybody's having conversations about the future of travel, but it was like, what makes travel travel? What is it about? So right now we think in very physical terms, I move my body from one place to another place, but the essence, the essence of a travel experience that makes something sensational and memorable is new experience, novelty, being surprised, people you meet. And we started having this kind of you know, rambling discussion about whether if things, as we think about more augmented reality and virtual reality, like what, 
how will you create the essence of travel if you're not physically moving yourself when that's what we're so used to doing? And we did kind of come that this point of surprise, like how you surprise and delight people. That also, um, I just naturally beautifully segued myself into talking a little bit about art, which I think is part of what happens when we when we travel and we're exposed to things that surprise and delight us, a lot of times it's some kind of artistic, either you see a performance or you're part of an impromptu musical performance, or you see some art or you meet, um, you meet somebody who creates art. Do you have, I mean, I'm totally coming out of left field for you, but are there any like encounters with artists that you've had in different, I mean, you worked in Ethiopia. I remember seeing some of your, um, your posts and comments from Ethiopia. Are there other, like, have you, have you had great artistic experiences that in your travels? Um, that's a good question. It's not something that jumps out to my mind. I think that the experiences that I seek out as a traveler are more connected to architecture, which I guess is part of art. Um, and I'm so in, I love examining and, and, and watching and learning about buildings and what they were built for and what they've been used for over time and how different generations will use buildings, especially in places like Southeast Asia or many parts of Southeast Asia where there was no money to tear them down. And so they have to change and morph to meet the times um, and to meet the needs of the people in that generation. So, um, you know, here we, we can see in Myanmar and Cambodia, especially how the colonial architecture, you know, these buildings I, are so big, you know, the British, they built them and the French, they built them to last. They really thought they were going to be here forever. They're so imposing. And then they've morphed over time. And, you know, the most poignant example, of course, is the Tulslang prison here, which was a horrible prison during the civil war and is now a museum today. And so, I think for me, when I'm thinking about interactions with a, a place, I think about the architecture a lot. And I think that the history that we can learn from being in a building and learning its past is really can tell us a lot about a place and the people and, and the times. Mm-hmm. How you feel going into some place that's so ancient when a lot of times when, so with, with climate, of course, the, the soul of climate action for me is preserving the joy and benefits of travel for future generations. And part of that, I mean, it's the joy for the traveler and benefits for local communities and conservation projects. And a lot, I hadn't thought until you just mentioned that because I, of course, the preservation of monuments is such a huge, huge expensive topic and climate change is affecting monuments of course, because places are getting eroded and flooded. And I know in, I know just a little bit about um, the water table in Cambodia, but um, maybe you know a little bit more. Like, is it, what's happening? Is, is Angkor Wat sinking? I, I mean, I know you there's also a, say there's, you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do know because all of our projects in Cambodia are conservation projects that use tourism as a tool for conservation. So we're talking about these things in the water table all the time, although I'm no expert. Um, but yeah, I think it's a real problem, the extent to which it's been depleted. And the, there's a real fear that, you know, the solutions are, are, are out of reach. Um, and that's really, really upsetting for the, you know, 
there's a lot of smart people working really hard to solve these problems over here and, and I guess in every country. Um, but of course, it and the Cambodian cool. government isn't blind to it. They're like hip to it. They're hip to it, I think. Um, but it's hard when you have resource limited resources and you have kids that need to be educated and fed and healthcare systems that need to be upheld. It's hard to allocate your resources. Um, you know, you have to make priorities are different. And, um, and so, and so, you know, if you're, if you're driving around Cambodia and you're looking at Google maps and you're like, Oh, I'm in a national park on the Google map, but you look up and you see factories all around you. That's, that's sort of the situation at the moment. Um, so it's, I, I, I think there is hope. And, and like I said, people are working really hard on it, but it, it is also easy to, to get worried. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm not going to go negative. I think there, there is what I believe is that consumer sentiment. So also this is part of um, the tomorrow's air um, mission is to activate a grassroots global collective for climate action. And I do think that um, usually in all the places that the Adventure Travel Trade Association, where, and even before that, when I had Zolo, that there was always an internal champion in the government who was like fighting against all odds. And those people are everywhere still fighting against all odds. And so I feel like we have, um, you know, the more amplification we can give to those voices, the more we can um, help their cause. So that's why I do feel hopeful. And I think that um, you're right, that that travelers who can travel internationally, and we will do that again, have the sensitivity around that to help influence those development decisions. Um, yeah. And you find those champions in your entrepreneurs and your guides as well, because they're, of course, on the front lines and they see the link. So um, just another reason to always use a guide and use a tour company when you travel. Mm-hmm. I want to, um, so Natasha, among the many gifts that you have, leading groups in line dances and speaking many languages, you also are very gifted with um, capital cities of places that I've never even heard of. And I thought I would quiz you with a couple capitals. And so oh. <laughs> okay, are you try, ready? Try. I'm ready. <laughs> Do you know, I, I mean, I just made these places up. I didn't look up what the capitals were. So I don't know what the capitals are. Do you know the capital, Natasha Martin, of Burundi? Oh, it's Bujumbura. <laughs> Why would you even know that? What about Togo? Do you know the capital of Togo? I do. It's Lome. <laughs> But I have to tell you that I like, I'm not, this is not like, I used to sit down and memorize these as a kid because I really wanted to beat my dad at Trivial Pursuit. And I also had a lifelong dream of going on Jeopardy, which I think is still, you know, when I, it's still a goal. This is a I, good I, goal. I could see, yeah. I just want to do it while Alex Trebek is still on the show. So I, I'm not like, I'm not like naturally a smart trivia person. I like sit down and I memorized these things and I guess they're still in my brain. <laughs> so this, I also want to just like, this is a core thing in your personality. Like you present so cheery. I was thinking about um, one possible intro for you and then I couldn't spit it all out, but like you have this presentation of like very cheerful and feminine. And yet then there's this like determined, persevering, 
very, very gritty person. <laughs> like this has come through in so many travel experiences, right? In Greenland, in India, places where I've, I mean, talk a little bit about the Greenland ice cap. I, w- I, we didn't, I didn't sleep on the Greenland ice cap, but you, what happened that day? Well, I lost, I mean, that sounds terrible. It sounds like they died. They didn't die, but my friends were really angry at me. But I had, you know, we organized this trip to Greenland, which you were part of. And I really, I love Greenland. It's, it's, I love destinations that are wide open and big and, you know, make you feel small. And Greenland, there's, there's just nothing to compare to Greenland if you're seeking out that feeling. Um, And I had stayed on the ice cap before and I had pictures of that experience. And in that experience, I'm wearing a giant coat uh, and snow pants. Um, And and so that was kind of my memory. It was like 10 years ago. And what I guess I didn't realize was that picture was actually taken in August. And so when we went back in March, I was like, we have to sleep on the ice cap. It's so beautiful. It's so stunning. And the tour operator was like, it's really cold. I was like, yeah, I know it's cold. I've done it before. Um, but <laughs> I, so yeah, I know, right? I was, but I had Don't done it in August me. in the summer. Yeah. And so we get out there and, you know, we're, everyone's a little bit nervous. Um, we get out there. It's probably minus 20 Celsius. I'm not sure what that's. I don't speak Fahrenheit. Um, and, you know, it's cold, but we're walking around and everyone's like, you know, this isn't too bad. The sun drops. It goes to like minus 35. We're sleeping in these tents. It is so cold. I was really worried that someone, I actually had frostbite on my nose. It was miserable. It was miserable. And um, it wasn't even one of those situations where you're like, it's better when it's over. It's a great story to tell to the state people like we hate that you brought us out there. I mean, nobody peed for 24 hours because it was just so cold, but it was beautiful, but no one could take their hands out of their mitts to take a picture. So we actually have like very little photographic evidence that we even did it. Um, but that'll teach me to uh, pay more attention to the seasons and also listen to the tour operator. When they when a Greenlandic tour operator tells you it's too cold to do something, it's too cold to do something. I Well, yeah. I love, I love that you did it, though. And I loved also the group of women you brought were so, I mean, all sort of international development, really. Also, like you, like the whole group. I was like, how are these fragile young women going to do this thing? <laughs> Um, so Greenland's also like a, 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 no pun intended, maybe pun intended hotspot for conversations on global warming. I think um, Greenland's ice is melting seven times faster today than it was at the beginning of um, 20 or 1992. I'm looking at a study right now. So, I mean, the fears around what happens when Antarctica melts and Greenland melts, the the water level rise is something that will devastate coastal communities around the world. When I went to Greenland, I was, you know, I had sort of climate very much on my mind. And then when you're there, you also have this feeling of what can I do? And I think this is what travelers want very much to be able to take climate action into their own hands. Like, what can I do? I'm here. I see this. It's sensational. There's got to be more that we can do than just vote. And I I feel like that's kind of part of the sustainability movement that's building now is people understanding uh, that they can learn about offsetting. And as we're trying to do with Tomorrow's Air is inspire and um, promote information about carbon removal, which um, would permanently store carbon dioxide. So um, is that, and you're working, I know uh, you 
still work closely with the folks in Greenland, Luca and others. How, what kind of, um, what are they thinking about with, I mean, I also find that Greenlanders are very, um, like they're adept and they understand the world is always changing and they're very self-sufficient. And so it's like, they do want to protect everything for future generations. And they also are, are like, well, we can figure things out no matter what. What's your, what's your take on that? I think you're totally right. I mean, you know, they have been adapting and, and living and uh, making life work in one of the most inhospitable places on the planet for thousands and thousands of years. And so I think there's, there's no doubt that um, the skills that um, have made them such an innovative, um, you know, society so far are going to take them through whatever comes next. But I think they're also very much aware of it. And there's, you know, lots of conversations and lots of um, projects and mitigation projects that go on around um, these themes. But but I think Greenlanders are very, you know, realistic and adjust the sails and 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 they will find ways to to adapt to to how the climate change and it's already changing. I mean, I remember 10 years ago, one of the most poignant, I think for me, climate really comes, the, the, the issues around climate come alive in the everyday stories that you hear. And one of the stories that I heard was um, Greenlandic women for their national costume, they wear seal skin boots. And to make seal skin boots, you take the, the skin of the seal and you stretch it and you leave it outside in the winter. But for the skin to take on um, the, the, the shape or, that it really needs, it has to be extremely cold. And I remember 10 years ago, it hadn't been cold enough for a couple of years to make new boots. And so it's in, you know, so they had found another way then to, 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 to make the boots through other materials and things like that. So that's just one small story, but I think it's in those small stories when you hear about these traditions that they've been doing for thousands of years that they can't do anymore. And then they find a new way to do it. Um, and it's when you hear those stories that you, 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 this is how people adapt. It's little by little in, in, in small ways. Yeah. All these increments. That's exactly that's yeah, exactly it's, it's, it. I don't think it's one big thing, right? It's it's every day. And every that's why hour. it's easy to miss. Like I think that's why Yeah, I could go on and on. Okay. I am going to wrap us up here. Closing question, Natasha. I like to ask my other guests about their favorite music, what they listened to in high school, what they listen to now. I think a better question for you, although you are a sensational dancer and I know you listen to a lot of music, would be something around books because you read more books than anyone. I don't know how you do this with a small child, but I don't, you're reading like 50 books a year or something. Like when did that pattern start? And, um, and then what would you recommend we all read today? I, yeah, I just love reading. It's my hobby and I don't really do anything else for fun. So I guess that's how that happened. And we don't get, we don't get any TV in most of the places I've lived. So, um, and I love talking about books. I'm like a member of like seven book clubs. And recently I have read two fantastic books about fish, which are a topic that I, you know, really have no interest in whatsoever, but I really recommend these two books. The first one is Stronghold by Tucker Malarkey, I think her name is. And she writes about her cousin who, whose lifelong mission it is to save the world's salmon. And it's just a fantastic uh, description of a character, this guy's character and his work and you know, salmon, which are really incredible animals or fish. Um, and then the second book about fish is called Why Fish Don't Exist. And it's by Lulu Miller. Do you know her? 
Nope. You've been um, feeling fishy lately. I, I, love, I mean, I grew yeah. up in Alaska. Salmon was like huge. I should totally read that one. You should totally read it. And then you should read Why Fish Don't Exist, which is a beautiful book about um, taxonomists and how they see the world and and ultimately why fish don't actually exist. So that's those are my two recommendations. And I think- I love that. We got, I have to figure out some- um... There's something to do there with why fish don't exist and climate action. I'll have to work on that. Natasha, thank you so much for taking the time to get up and be on our podcast. I love chatting with you. We're going we're gonna to have you back. Thank you for having me. Have a happy day. 